This time the younger children, if they wish, may meet their teachers in the back, and they'll rejoin us at the end of the service. Older kids that are sticking around, there's some red folders in the lobby you can grab that have fill-in-the-blank sermon note outlines. To help you follow along as we look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. Colossians chapter 21, verses, sorry, Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. If you're flipping through the New Testament and you see Galatians or Ephesians or Philippians or Colossians, just remember, Gentiles eat pork chops. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. It's your theology joke for the morning. Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. Hear now the word of the Lord. And you, you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. How do you get gum out of a child's hair? That was the question that came up when I was dropping my son off at Taekwondo last week. One of the mothers noticed, had no idea how it had happened because no one in her family had been chewing gum but noticed that one of the young ones had gum in the hair, and she said, how do I get this out? And there were as many uh, options offered as there were parents standing around hearing the question. The answer is peanut butter, by the way, which then leads to the question, how do you get peanut butter out of a child's hair? I've never understood that. Or perhaps it's, how do you stop hiccups? If you ask that question, you will get as many answers as there are people in the room. Scare them, drink water upside down, drink water upside down. Scare them while they drink water upside down. I prefer a spoonful of sugar. That works for me. Because if it doesn't work, I get a spoonful of sugar. We approach life, I think, in a similar way. Looking for and trying all the various solutions and options people have for us. A little bit of this, a little bit of that. Well, this might work this time. This might work that time. This is working for me so far. But you know, so-and-so said this is really working for them. So I'm going to add that to my life as well. The Colossians were doing something like that with the Christian faith. Adding different practices, new rules, special prayers, concoctions of spiritual home remedies, if you will. If the peanut butter doesn't work, let's try baking soda. If this doesn't work, let's try that. I have to have this or so-and-so says I won't be right with God. The problem that we're faced with before God, though, does not have multiple possible solutions. Instead, it is as if you are lost in the woods and there is only one direction that will lead you home. Only one direction. And that's what Paul is reminding the Colossians and reminding us today. The gospel is not one solution among many where you can ask around and get options for how to solve your problem. It's not part of a bigger solution. Our problem is that we are lost. We are lost in sin and lost from our original design, our purpose. And only Christ stands above our lostness. Only His gospel leads us back. 
only through Jesus and not through anything that we would add to Jesus. Only through Jesus does God defeat sin and our lostness and complete his plan for us. And that is why Paul calls the church back to the gospel here in verse 23. He says, this is the gospel that you heard, the same gospel that's been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and the gospel of which I, Paul, became a minister. There are not multiple choice gospels. Well, I like this gospel, but I like what this gospel introduces to it. No, there is one gospel that will lead us out of our lostness. One solution, one cure, one answer. One path out of our mess and back to where we belong. Because nothing else can do what the gospel does. In these short verses, the Spirit of God teaches us who we are without the gospel. And it teaches us what we become through the gospel and teaches us how we continue in the gospel. Let's begin by looking at who we are without the gospel. I've recently learned that prescription drug commercials are unique in American culture. They, most countries do not have commercials for prescription drugs. And what I find so fascinating about these commercials is the lengths they go to to convince you how much you need this thing. And, and through the, uh, the aesthetic of the commercial and the language of it and the testimonials that are given, life is colorless, it's unhappy, it's unmanageable, it's hopeless, etc. Now imagine if they didn't do that. I mean, I understand from an advertising perspective why they need to do that. Because would anybody be convinced to try this medicine if you're like, hey, try, you know, Cavalcaflacamacle, you know, because why not? Because it couldn't hurt, could it? No, they have to convince you that without this, you have no other hope. You have no other option. Your life is unhappy. It's empty without it. Paul is doing something similar here, though without the exaggeration of a prescription drug commercial. In verse 21, he's establishing who we are without the gospel. He says, you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. That's who you are apart from the gospel. Without the work of Christ in our lives, we are alienated from God. That word alienated means to be cut off, to be separated, to be excluded, to have no relationship with somebody. But not only are we alienated, he says we are hostile in mind. That word hostile is just the adjective form of the Greek word for enemy. We were enemies in our minds. And that word mind doesn't just mean our brain. It means our whole way of thinking. Our whole pattern of thought. Our whole way of seeing the world and approaching it and processing it and understanding it was hostile to how God sees things. And the third description Paul gives of those without the gospel is that we are doing evil deeds which is really the fruit of a hostile mind. So in three ways, our relationship to God, our way of thinking and seeing the world, and our behavior are what characterize life without the gospel. We need to accept that this is our starting point. This is who we are apart from Christ. This is why we in this church make a habit in, in our worship of confessing our sin even in the process of worshiping. Because Jesus said it's not the healthy who need the doctor, it's the sick. Jesus said, I didn't come 
to save the righteous. I came to save the unrighteous. So until you accept that you are sick, that you are unrighteous, that you are alienated and cut off and an enemy, until you can sincerely accept that that's who you are, then you are not ready for the relationship that Jesus will have with you. Because He didn't come to save those who are doing just fine. He didn't come to save those who are all on God's side but don't have that Jesus thing yet. No, without the Gospel, you are His enemy. That's who Jesus came to save. There is no neutral ground. And that's what's interesting and important here. No one, not you, not your kindest neighbor, no one is unaligned. You serve God or you are hostile to Him. You are alienated from Him. Unless Jesus saves us, we are enemies of God. But God shows grace even to His enemies. As we confessed or heard in our assurance of pardon this morning from Romans chapter 5, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. God didn't look across the world and pick out the, uh, the best people, the ones with the most potential, the ones who were the least offensive and crude, the ones who were sincerely already seeking Him and already sincerely trying to be good and just needed that extra push and say, these are the ones good enough to save. These are the ones who deserve to be my children. No, the grace of God is not just that He welcomes those who turn to Him. That's an incomplete picture of God's grace. That's an insufficient description of God's grace. It is true that God welcomes all those who turn to Him. But believing only that would give the impression that the process of returning was something we did. Something that came from us. But no, verse 21 says, He reconciled us. He did the work. I was lost and now I figured out my way back. Isn't that how we sang it this morning? I once was blind, but I worked really hard until I could see again. Isn't that what we sang? It's not. No. A better picture than God welcoming us once we finally decide to come back home is, uh, I think, of the sci-fi classic The Matrix, which describes humanity in this crisis where the machines have taken over and they've turned most of humanity into these batteries that just power their war but those who remain and are fighting for freedom are living in the city called zion and the people of zion what they do is a beautiful picture of grace in my opinion they go into the enemy's camp and they they don't look for the people who are trying to find them because nobody's trying to find zion they instead capture and then convert their enemies they find the ones who are enslaved by the enemies and they capture them and bring them to freedom and set them free to live in Zion. No, the grace of God is so much greater than just waiting for people to find their way to Him. In grace, God captures the enemy and converts them into His children. Don't miss that Paul says in this verse, once, once you were this way, you used to be this way, but not anymore. How did we go from being God's enemies to being His children? Verse 21 says, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death. I believe it might be verse 22. He has now reconciled us in His body by the flesh of His death. 
The only way that we can stop being enemies with God is because Jesus was punished for what we did. That is the only way that we can stop being His enemies. Because our rebellion against Him had a cost. It had a price. It had a penalty. And the penalty is death. The Gospel finds us with a debt that we can never pay off. And Jesus enters our story and pays the debt. That should make us humble people. You cannot look at those around you and think that you are somehow smarter or better or a nicer person or have a greater morality than them. And that that's what makes you set apart and special and part of God's kingdom. You should be humble because you too once were an enemy of God, alienated, cut off, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. should also make us a thankful people. There's no other way to get this but by God reaching in and saving you. And it should make you, lastly, a gracious people. When you look at those who stand outside of the Gospel still, you should look upon them with the same measure of grace that God showed you. When you look at your brother and sister in the Lord who has offended you, hurt you, you look upon them with the same grace that God showed His enemies. That is who we are without the Gospel. But then Paul goes on to describe what we become through the Gospel. We see in the Gospel how we are lost, cut off from God, and He reaches in and saves us. But these verses go on to explain that that saving us is not all He does. In order for His victory over our lostness to be complete, Jesus not only rescues us from sin, but He also removes the sin from us. He doesn't just take us out of sin. He takes sin out of us. And so we need to see not only who we are without the gospel, but what we become through the gospel. Because forgiving us is not the end of God's plan for us. It's only the beginning. Forgiving us is not the end of God's plan for us. That's not what it's all leading to. It's the beginning of His plan for us. Verse 22 He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. That phrase, in order to, indicates purpose, plan, the goal. Why did Jesus die on the cross to save you? What did He hope to accomplish? According to this verse, His goal is to make you holy. God does not just want you to be a forgiven sinner He wants you to be a holy saint, blameless and without sin. And there's a bigger goal above that even. I want you to follow me through the story of creation in Scripture to see it. Beginning with creation, God made humanity, mankind, He made you with a purpose. And that purpose is to bring Him glory. Isaiah 43, verses 6-7 through God says, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. God's purpose in creating anything and everything that he made, including me and you, is to put his goodness on display. That's what it means to bring Him glory. It's to put God's goodness on visible display to show how great and powerful and good and wise and loving He is. 
And so he made us in his image in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Every man, woman, and child is designed to be in the image of God, to put God's goodness on visible display. So having made Adam and Eve in his image, he gives them this command in the next verse. Genesis 1.28, God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So God makes man and woman in his image and then tells them to fill the earth. God's plan at creation was to fill the earth with his image by filling it with people. By filling it with people made in his image. That was the plan, to make man and woman in his image. Look at this, this represents me. Now fill the earth with the image of God to show how good he is. How'd that work out? Mm. Not long after the commands were given, Adam and Eve chose to sin. And yet scripture shows us they did not lose the image of God. They marred it, they messed it up, they tarnished it, but it is still there. God's image remains to some degree in every person you meet. But as they filled the earth, and they did go on and fill the earth, and we're still filling it today, did they fill it with the glory of God? The goodness of God? Not really, did they? No, they filled it with sin. But has God's plan changed? No. God's plan to fill the earth with His glory by filling it with His image in men and women is still the plan. Look at Romans 8.29. Those whom God foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. When you are saved, God is shaping you into the image of Jesus which as we saw last week, a few verses earlier in Colossians, Jesus is the image of God. When you are fashioned and shaped and directed into the image of Jesus, you are being reshaped into the image of God that you were created to be. Disciples of Jesus, me, you, all who follow him, are being formed and shaped as we grow in grace more and more into the image of God. Loving what He loves. Thinking as He thinks. Acting as He would act. And His plan still, just as in Genesis, His plan is to fill the earth with that image. Look at Matthew 28, 19. The Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations. Jesus commanded His disciples to go out and make more disciples. To make sure that around the world, people are being shaped and recreated into the image of Christ. Once again, filling the world with the image of God in order to put His goodness on display. Christian, child of God, that is what should direct your steps. The reason you gather here, the reason we worship, the reason we teach one another, how to love God, how to obey God, how to follow faithfully, the reason we gather together throughout the week to pray for one another and encourage one another and spend time together is to display God's image in us, to show who He is. 
That's the reason we try to live obediently, to live holy, blameless lives. It's not to earn God's favor. It's not to show off our morality before other people. Not to somehow feel superior to people who aren't living the way we are. It's not to shame other people. We live obedient, holy, blameless lives in order to show the world what God is like. As he said in Matthew 5, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is who we are because of the gospel. We are people recreated in God's image in order that we may give glory to God. Now, is it just me? Or is that far better news than simply saying, Jesus forgives your sin? Jesus saves. Amen. We believe He does. But that's just the beginning. You're created for something much more than that. You're created for something much higher than that. You're created to show the world what God is like. Jesus makes you into what you were created to be. He pays the penalty of your lostness. He returns you to the beautiful position you fell from. If. If. Two letters. Huge implications. If. Verse 23. All this will happen if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So having seen who we are without the gospel and what we become through the gospel, we need to look at how we continue in the gospel. We walk a fine line whenever we talk about that if. Because we don't want to arrive at the unbiblical conclusion that our reward in Christ and our joy in the gospel and our security as children of God is the result of our obedience. That would contradict the clear teaching of Scripture and even the verses we just looked at. It is He who reconciles us by His death, not us. And yet it does say, if. What do we do with that little word, if? Well, we need to see that, that at the very least, what it's saying and what I want you to hear is that the gospel is not a door that we enter. It's a path that we walk. And repeat that line. The gospel is not a door that we enter. It is a path that we walk. To be more accurate, I should probably say it's both. It is both a door that we enter, but it is also a path that we walk. We can misunderstand the way that the grace of God works and think that as long as we step through the door of the gospel, as long as we pray that prayer, as long as we check that box that says, Christian, say you believe that Jesus died for your sins, you've entered the door, and it doesn't matter what happens after you enter that door. That is a false view of of the grace of God. The gospel is not just a door that we enter, it's a path that we walk. And so Paul says here in verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. We must continue in the faith because faith is not just believing something. Faith is living a certain way because of what you believe. Faith isn't just believing something, it's living a certain way because of what you believe. 
I was going through some old videos trying to, you know, delete some of the stuff from years ago that I don't even know why I filmed it anymore and came across some cute videos of my kids when they were much younger and we'd, we'd have an animal trapped in our, our patio. There was one that I looked at recently. It was a moth about that big, okay, huge. I wouldn't go near it, okay? My kids are like really wanting this because it's fuzzy and furry, you know, about the size of like a furry mouse or something. And, and they, but they're, they're scared because they don't know what this thing can do. Does this thing sting? Will this thing bite them? Will it hurt them? And so you hear me as I'm filming it, assuring them, no, 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 this thing doesn't sting. It's not going to bite you. It doesn't even have a stinger. It doesn't have teeth. It's not going to hurt you in any way. You can go ahead. You can pick it up. You can scoop it up. You know, I'm trying to get them to do what I wouldn't dare do. <laughs> they know that now. <laughs> and it's, it's once they were convinced, because they trust their daddy so much, once they're convinced this thing won't hurt them, you see them just kind of scoop it up. Same thing with snakes. I will not touch snakes. I don't care how little it is. I don't care how much I know that that thing is not venomous. But my kids will trust me. And if I say, no, 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 that's not venomous. It won't, it won't poison you. They reach, they'll get it. They'll get it. Because they will act a certain way because of what they believe to be true. What the one who they trust has told them is true. I try to live worthy of that trust. That is what faith is for you. Faith is not just what you believe. Faith is living a certain way because of what you believe to be true, because what you've been told is true by the one that you trust. That's the whole point of Hebrews chapter 11. Don't worry, it's, it's not in the slides. I'm not going to put the whole chapter up there. But you, if you're familiar with Hebrews 11, it lists the heroes of the faith, the men and the women who in faith accomplished great things in Scripture. And the beauty of that chapter for me is that, that each character it lists, it, it has action verbs. Because of what they believe, Abraham, in faith, left his home because God had promised him a better home. Abraham, in faith, offered up Isaac because he believed in the promise of God. Moses, in faith, stood against Pharaoh and led the people through the Red Sea and into the promised land. Rahab, in faith, hid the spies that she might receive the promise given to God's people. Because they believed, they acted, they lived a certain way. The gospel that you are called to believe is that Jesus died for your sins and that that is all that God demands for your salvation. Now what the Colossian Christians were being tempted to believe was that more was required of them. They had to stick to a certain diet. They had to pray to angels. They had to observe certain holy days and certain special events. We could probably come up with our own list of additions, couldn't we, that the church is tempted to today. Things that we add to the finished work of Christ. Things our culture, our upbringing, our church background tells us are necessary. We expect to be approved by God. Oh, you, you say you're a Christian. Do you read your Bible every morning? Oh, you say you're a Christian. Have you had that, that second experience of the Holy Spirit? Oh, you believe you're a Christian. Well, do you do this? Do you practice it in this way? Does it look, have you had this experience? Do you do this? Do you pray this prayer? We add to the finished work of Christ. And it's easy to do that. 
It's easy to believe that because grace is confusing. That God would require some sort of performance or achievement or accomplishment from us just feels like that's the way it ought to be, right? So we begin with grace, but then we add our own accomplishments to another church in the New Testament. Paul rebuked them for that in this way in Galatians 3. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh, by your own effort, by your own works? Much of the rest of the book of Colossians that we'll be looking at this summer is warning against that, pointing us back to the simple promise of the gospel. The gospel that reminds us that Jesus has already done everything we need. We don't have to change or add to what He has done. So this if in Colossians 1 is not a call to please God with our works. Far from it. It's actually the opposite of that. It's a call to not shift away from grace. To not give up on the promise that Jesus is enough. To not leave the path of the gospel in order to follow some other teaching or promise or gospel that adds to the work of Christ. That's what it means to continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. The hope that you heard, brothers and sisters, was that Christ alone is enough. Don't be drawn away from that into any other hope, into anything that you would add to the gospel as necessary to secure your place as a child of God. Don't add hope in having a perfect doctrine. Don't add hope in a certain code of behavior. Don't add hope in a certain political system or legislation. Don't add hope in a certain lifestyle or life situation that you feel like you have to attain. Don't add hope that you would receive approval or acceptance from a certain group of people. Those are the home remedies, the alternative solutions the stuff that gets added. And they will not deliver you from the deep, real, true crisis of your existence. Instead, continue in the gospel. Don't allow yourself to live as if you had to add to the work of Christ. And when you hold on to the gospel that way, when you hold to the, the sufficiency that Christ is enough, you live out the gospel. Faith, you remember, is living a certain way because of what you believe. When you believe that Jesus is enough, you not only reject all the stuff that people try to add on, but you in faith will then show grace to those that don't deserve it. If Jesus is enough, then you will treat your enemies with mercy and with respect because you don't need to win over them. You don't need to be superior to them. You don't need to be proved right. Jesus is enough. When you believe Jesus is enough, you give generously of your time, of your money, because there's no better way to spend such things than on the kingdom of God. And if God has promised that He will always provide all of your needs, then you can be bold in how you use what He gives you. You can live wildly contrary to the currents of our culture because your worth doesn't depend, not even a little bit depend, on what other people think about you. I could go on. There's many ways that holding fast and continuing in the simple truth of the gospel lives out in our lives. But ask yourself this. Meditate on this. Discuss this with your friends this week. How am I tempted 
to shift from the hope of the gospel. How am I tempted to live as if Jesus is not enough? And how can we help one another to continue in the faith? Jesus is greater than our lostness. That's the message here. Without the good news, without the gospel of Jesus, we are, we are cut off. We are enemies of God. We're utterly lost. But through the gospel, we display God's goodness by imitating Him in the world. And we do that by holding on to grace. Not adding to the work of Jesus, but continuing to trust that what God has done through Jesus is all that you or anyone will ever need. He takes us from alienation to glorification. And I want to leave you with this word of encouragement because if by any chance all this talk of continuing and if and not shifting your hope feels like I've put a burden on you, a responsibility on you that you don't think you can bear. Remember this beautiful promise from Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul says, if you continue. But he also says, you will continue. Because it's not up to you. It's the grace of God at work in you. His forgiveness of you is not the end of your story. It's certainly not the end of God's work in your life. It's the beginning of it, and He will carry it to completion. Child of God, you will continue. Christ is greater than our lostness, and He will complete the good work He began. The only burden that you have is to believe that. To believe that and to live joyously because of it. This is what it means to take up your cross and follow Him, because His yoke is easy. His burden is light. And when you take up your cross, you only take up what He has already carried in your place. Let us thank Him for that and praise Him for the good news. Heavenly Father, we were Your enemies. We were cut off. We were living in hostility against You. And without the grace that you've put at work in our lives, we still would be your enemies. And even our goodness, our righteousness, our morality would be offensive in your sight. Because we would do it for ourselves and not for you. But you have not only reconciled us through the death of Christ, but you are making us your image bearers. Holy, blameless, and above reproach, putting your goodness on display. Holy Spirit, work in our lives to make that a reality. This week as we go forth, may the words that we speak, may the actions that we perform, may our fulfilling of our calling at work, at school, wherever we are, may we point people to the goodness of our God because You are making us holy and blameless. And by Your grace, secure us. May we continue. You've promised that no one, no one can snatch your children out of your hands. We rest in that promise. We will continue because by the grace of God, you make us continue. Thank us. Thank you, Father, for the gospel that sustains us. We pray in our Savior's name. Amen.